Father, we thank you for the victory that is in Jesus. That he bought us, that we belong to him. And that all the victories we will have in this life, all the spiritual victories are actually won on the cross. We participate in them, we, we, we see them, we, we do things, we cooperate with them, but certainly they've already been paid for. And so we praise you, Father, for sending your Son to do such a great work for us. Now may we uh, also have victory in seeing the words of Jesus and being uh, prompted to practice them, to understand them better. Uh, certainly a passage like this, which is bigger than, bigger than us, m- more than we can accomplish, it feels like at times, but you've called us to it. And so may we uh, strive, strive after love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So during my rebellious years as a youth pastor, that was for you, Andrew, um, I, I was doing a wedding, and uh, this, uh, this couple, young, young couple, and they chose some wedding music for their wedding of the, the rock variety, if you know what I mean. And uh, the, the bride walked into um, uh, a Christian rock band named Skillet. Their, their song's called Awake and Alive. It's a song about being alive to Christ, but she actually came in to that song, you know? And I was like, you know, obviously I knew she was going to do that because I was at the rehearsal, but it was still like, man, you know, the drums are going and they're electric guitars and and they're singing, I'm awake and I'm alive and I know what what it means to believe. And I'm just like, man. And and I couldn't resist when when she came in, I said, welcome to the rock and roll wedding, you know? And everybody's kind of laughing, you know? And, and, uh, but before that, there was an instrumental song, an instrumental rock song that was played. And, you know, usually when I walk in with the groom, it, it's kind of like, it, 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 there's no special fanfare, you know. You just kind of walk in and get in your spot, you know, because everything's about the bride, you know. Anybody getting married soon? It's all about the bride, okay. So the pastor and groom walk in. But, but this one, the, the groom had picked out a song for us, me and the groom, to walk into. And it was, uh, it was a secular song, but they didn't play the words, okay? And so I, I don't think I knew, like, what song they picked. They just said, it's just an instrumental rock song, you know. And so I'm standing there by the doors as they're waiting to be opened, and I heard the first notes of the song, and I'm like, this is a secular song. This is a Green Day song. And, and, I'm, and I think, I think I know this song. And, it, and it's a song that's called, Do You Know the Enemy? Do you know that song? Do you? All right. Okay. So the song is called "Do You Know the Enemy," and, and I knew the song from the radio, and uh, and so I remember looking over at the groom and, as the song started playing because I was a little surprised, and I was like, "All I could say was this, Vinny, do you know the enemy?" And he looked at me and said, "Yeah, Satan." <laughs> and then we walked into the church. That's all I needed. That was all I needed. So. I want to ask you, church, this morning, do you know the enemy? Do, do you know the enemy? Because today we're talking about loving your enemies, and uh, you might as well have somebody in mind as I preach this, okay? So I'll ask a couple questions, you know. Um, who, who is your personal enemy? 
who is someone that is against you or has insulted you? Who has hurt you? Who has betrayed you? We could lighten it up a little bit and say, who is a person you just have a hard time being around because just the way they are? And they kind of grate on your nerves and you have nothing kind to say about them. Who is that person? Who is the enemy? And then I'd ask you, who is the enemy of the church? And I'm not trying to spiritualize it because I know Satan is the enemy. I, I know that's a true statement. I'm not preaching about Satan today necessarily. But I think there are groups of people that we label as they are the enemy. The enemy of the church. And we, and we have labels for them. This is who they are. These people. You know? Now, what we're going to read, as you have those people in your mind, if you've answered the question now, do you know the enemy? We can move forward. And we can look and see what Jesus says to do to the enemy. Go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Matthew five thirty-eight. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, you know, it's really it's interesting because we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and as we've gone through, I've, I've had people ask me, will I talk about this issue or that issue? Uh, meaning, you know, we, we've covered some difficult issues during this time, right? But... I don't think, I think I've, 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 I haven't lost sleep over this, but I think I've felt more anxiety over this. That's, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but, but I've felt more weight over this than talking about divorce, talking about lust. I mean, those are, those are sermons where you, you can hear a pin drop in the room. At least I, can, I feel like that. But this is the one for me where I read it and go, okay, how, how are we going to do this? It's kind of like preaching on the glory of God. How, how do I communicate how beautiful God is and how big he is? How, how do I even begin to do that? There's no way. How do I begin to tell you how to love an enemy? It, the love is bigger than me, and yet God has called me to it. 
Well, let's start digging into the passage and we'll see how we come out. Jesus starts by saying, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. So this is referring to, and I might say it wrong, lex talionis. It, it is the eye for eye, tooth for tooth comes out of Torah, okay, comes out of the Old Testament. And what was happening is, now, now let's just say that this is a good command. We should start by saying that. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is what God commanded. So you can't say, that's not good. It's the word of God. You don't, get, you don't amend that. You don't, it's good. But it was being misapplied. That's why Jesus had to say what he had to say. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. Because here's what's going on. The, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, were taking that principle, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, and they were applying it to personal relationships. Okay? You insult me, I insult you. You knock my tooth out, I'm knocking your tooth out. Eye for eye. The command was given, it's a good principle, but it was given for the courts. It was given for the civil arena. It was given so, in our day, People will sue over anything. It's the classic thing of I spilt my coffee at McDonald's, you know, and now I want to sue McDonald's because they got deep pockets, right? We, we, we hear about these frivolous lawsuits and we say eye for eye? Really? Tooth for tooth? Is that, is that how it really works? At its best, this is what the court system ought to be. It ought to be true justice. You can't take more than what happened to you. That's a good legal principle. But the problem is, uh, people in Jesus' day are taking the legal principle and saying, I'm applying that to my personal life. And whatever you do to me, whatever my neighbor does to me, I'm doing back to them. That's called revenge. And Jesus hasn't given us the right to take revenge. That God hasn't given us that right either. So the first thing Jesus is trying to say here is, don't resist an evil person. So uh, the question is, what do we do to our enemies? What is the church supposed to do to our... What is the church not supposed to do to our enemies? We'll start there. What we're not supposed to do is retaliate. We're not supposed to retaliate. And then Jesus gives uh, four examples of what it means not to retaliate, not to take revenge. And I love these examples because as you read them, you, you suddenly realize he's not just saying... Be passive with your hands in your pockets and take it like a man, you know. He, he's actually saying, be strong and in your non-retaliation, do some pretty amazing loving things for the person that's doing evil to you. So I love it because he says, don't resist. And resist, let's see if I can find my note here on resist. Maybe I'll find it. Oh, the Greek word resist means resist, oppose, withstand, set oneself against someone. But, but the funny thing is, in his examples, these aren't just resist examples. These are like do some good stuff examples. He gives four of them to illustrate his point. I think as a church we ought to be careful not to make Jesus' examples absolute. You know what I mean? You could read some of these examples. In particular, we think of turning the other cheek. And you could make that the absolute principle and say, well, 
if I'm never supposed to strike back, then that certainly means we shouldn't have police, we shouldn't have armies, because they strike at the evildoer. I mean, people have taken these passages and said, this means we all have to be complete pacifists. But I don't think, again, if, if people were taking the eye for an eye passage and they were lifting it out of the courts and applying it to personal life, I don't think we should take these personal examples and lift them up and apply them to the government and the army. You know, uh, when I once had a youth group member go away to the Marines and he came back and he shared with the youth ministry his experience being in Marine boot camp and standing up for Christ. And I'm not going to say he overshared. I'm just going to say he shared a lot of his experiences and the, the training they gave him, maybe more than what younger teenagers could handle hearing, you know. And, and I remember going back the next week and talking to the youth group and saying, you know, our friend who loves the Lord is being trained to kill people, okay? Uh, he, he, Romans 13 says, in a sense, he bears the sword for God, and he's there to punish evildoers. So let's be careful, um, lest we condemn what God sanctions. God grants some of his authority to the governments, at least according to Romans. He grants his authority to the governments, and he gives them the sword to terrify evildoers. That's biblical. So I, I don't think we should take these as a, every single situation. I think that's wrong, but... I do think there are four examples of what it means not to resist. First one is striking the cheek. Um, Probably, a lot of scholars have written on this. I I read a bit. But probably it's an insult with a backhand slap, you know. That's an insult. So now you've been insulted and you've turned the other cheek. You, you, You can insult me again. I think it's appropriate to say, you, you could take this in a literal sense, and if someone hits you, you allow them to hit you again. As one of my favorite professors said, but you've got to remember, you only have two cheeks. That was a Bible professor, okay? <laughs> you only have two cheeks. After that, you've got to figure out what you're going to do. But I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But I also think of like, you know, Bonhoeffer, his, his um, maybe you've heard this phrase, he talks about having a visible participation in the cross. A visible participation in the cross. So sometimes it's good to show the world that Christians suffer because Jesus suffered like this and there's a visible participation. People can see it. So I think you've got to keep that in mind too. And when I read scholars on this passage, it's so interesting how they're divided because some will say, oh yeah, that, that means you should never strike back, never strike back. Others say, no, no, he's not trying to make that an absolute. He's trying to talk about insults um, without trying to split hairs. Let's just say it is insulting to get a slap. And in an American context, most of us are not worried about getting beaten down physically by somebody. But we've certainly been insulted by people. Will you accept the insults of other people? Or do you have to let them have it back? That's certainly an American application. Will you take the strike? 
And certainly Jesus was insulted as well. So it is a visible participation in the cross to be insulted for your faith because Jesus was insulted. They mocked him, hail king of the Jews. And you will be mocked and participate in that way. Even though you may not be struck. Um, Another one that's talked about here is uh, the the second example, which is suing for the cloak. Suing for the cloak. Um, Now, in that, in that culture, you could sue for any of the undergarments, the outer garment you couldn't sue for, which is why Jesus says, if they sue you for the undergarments, you give them the outer, give them your coat too, because legally they couldn't take that. But he says, just give it to them. Just give it to them. How do we apply this? Well, if someone demands something of you that you think is unfair, perhaps you just give it to them and give them more. You say, what about my rights, you know? Well, yeah, what about your rights? That's the next example, too. Um, the next example is the famous going the second mile. We, we talk about this. This is in our uh, vernacular. Go the extra mile. So this is the idea here is if a Roman soldier talks to you and says, I want you to carry something for me, legally they can make you carry uh, their burden for one mile. Think about the day when Jesus was crucified and they made Simon carry the cross. The soldiers could force you to do these kind of things. And so you as a Jewish person might say, that's not just. Why would I carry the weight of a Roman soldier who is probably killing people that maybe I even care about? Roman soldiers, I don't like what they're doing. I don't like they're occupying my land. I don't like that they sack cities and kill innocent people. And now they're forcing me to carry their burden. And I've got to do that for a mile. And Jesus says, not only one, why don't you go two? with that person that kills your countrymen. Why don't you go too? How do we apply that here? Well, the first thing that came to my mind is taxes. You know, do you pay all that you owe? Right? Maybe you don't think it's just that they take what they take, but do you pay it all? I've known Christians that have done kind of the -the under-the-table dealings to hide money from the government. Yes, that happens. Will you obey an unjust law? Because it's the law of the land. I'm not talking about an unrighteous law. I'm not talking about a law that, that dishonors God. You don't obey those laws if they exist. I'm talking about disobeying a law that you don't feel is just and is right. You're obligated to obey that law, Jesus is saying. And go the extra mile. The fourth example causes me to scratch my head because he says, uh, give to the one who wants to uh, borrow. Where are we at here? Uh, 42, verse 42. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And, and, and this changed my whole perspective on this teaching right here. Because it's like, oh, suddenly I'm talking about my annoying neighbor I'm not talking literally, by the way. If you're my neighbor, careful. I'm not literally talking about my neighbor, but I'm talking about that annoying neighbor who wants to borrow gas money from you or something from you, and you say, boy, are they irresponsible asking me for money. And Jesus says, give it to them. Now, again, you, don't, you shouldn't take this as an absolute and 
let's say you're, you're um, eating at a local restaurant and someone staggers in drunk and says, boy, I need, I need $20. I need to, and they make up some sort of story. I need to do something with this. And you're like, no, you want to buy alcohol with that. You know, you've already had enough. He's not saying just give indiscriminately. That would be absolute. I'm making the text an absolute. Don't, you don't do that. But he's saying don't turn away from the person in need because you may not like them, because you might consider them the enemy, because they annoy you. This, this really made me cause a look at this and say, Jesus is asking me to die to myself here. But I don't get to do to my enemy what I want to do to them. So, uh, yeah. I went way too long studying this part of the text. But I, I want to say three things about this. Maybe, maybe you'll find this um, helpful. I read a book um, a few years back called uh, Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. As I understand, Martin Luther King had this kind of in his back pocket all the time. You know, read this book, lived by this book. Thurman is writing, if you want to understand race relations and, and the right way to interact and understand better some of the moral dilemmas that, that, that different races can have, you read Jesus and the Disinherited. It's, a, it's only 100 pages. It's one of those books where, you know, some, some Christian books I read, and about by page 100, the author's probably made a couple of really good points. You know what I mean? They told a lot of stories on the way, and they've got a couple of good points. This is one of those ones where every page is packed full of helpful insights as to how you treat the enemy. And it's just knocks, knocks me down. You know, just like, man. So I'm influenced by Thurman, who also influenced Martin Luther King. Um, great Christian writer. Recommend, only 100 pages. It'll take you a while to get through if you read it the way you should, which is slowly. Um, so I wanted to answer the question, why is non-retaliation so powerful? Because I think I wanted to address this because we see the riots in America and we see this physical retaliation. Why is nonviolent protesting, why is not retaliating powerful in, in this text? And I want to suggest three things. Maybe there's more. Number one, when you don't retaliate, number one, you take control of the situation by making a free will choice. When you don't repay the eye and the tooth, you've made a choice and you've taken control of things. So you force me to walk a mile, I'm choosing to go the second of my own free will. The first mile was because legally I was obligated. The second mile I chose myself. I went the extra mile. Wouldn't it be so much better... When, when someone's demanding something of us, maybe to, to give in to those demands under the right circumstances. I know, and the way lawsuits go, people can try to take you for everything you've got, but under the right circumstances to, to give more out of free will because then you're moving from obligation to love. You've taken control. Number two, um, the enemy's heart can be influenced by your mercy. This is the heaping burning coals on their lap um, out of Romans. When you do good to the person that's done you wrong, there's a great, 
not, I don't know about great, but, but there's, a, there's a chance that God's going to use that good thing you've done to influence their heart, to turn them towards the Lord. God wants to help people come to him based on his goodness and his goodness flowing through you. So make the choice. Don't retaliate. In fact, do good. Number three, and I think this is true too, Ephesians 5.11 says we're supposed to expose deeds of darkness to the light. And so one thing, when you do good to the enemy, you're exposing the unjust nature of the wrong committed. You're saying, hey, take a look at this. Look at what what happened here. You're not you're not saying it. You're not saying, "Hey, look, I'm suffering over here." You're just loving, and when that becomes known, it shines a light on what was done. It exposes injustice. These are the kind of things that um, Howard Thurman, in his book that I just recommended, these are the kind of things he talks about. He talks about not hating your enemy, and so I think I'll use that to transition to Jesus' next part of the teaching. Here's a quote, one of the many great quotes. I was highlighting things on almost every page in this book. Um, He says, Hating is something of which to be ashamed. I agree with that. Hating is something of which to be ashamed unless it provides us some form of validation and prestige. Now, he's not arguing you should hate. He's saying this is what the world does. This is what people do. This is what people who don't love Christ do. Hating is something we're supposed to be ashamed of unless it provides a form of validation or prestige. Think about that. If you hate the right group of people in America, you are held up. That's prestige. That's validation. As long as you pick the right group to hate. And I think we can turn this around on the church. In the church, if you pick the right group to quote-unquote hate, because we don't hate, but if you pick the right group of people to despise, we validate you despising them. Thurman. Um, you ought to read it. It's vi- it's funny that you wrote it maybe, what, 50 years ago, and it's like, I feel like you're talking to America like right now. So that transitions into Jesus' words about loving your enemy. Um, verse 43, you've heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those that love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, what do we do to our enemies? Actively, what do we do to them? We love them. That's what we do to enemies. All right. Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. One of the kids this morning read the, 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 um, the part where it says you're supposed to love your, love your neighbors and, and do good to them. Um, it was never taught that you were supposed to hate your enemies. That's never found 
in Torah. Okay, you can look at the Old Testament. You know, look, look at the commands. It's not there. We do have David writing some psalms where he's kind of channeling God's wrath. That's the way I understand it, at least. But the Bible doesn't teach you to hate your enemy. They were saying, well, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, certainly my neighbor means people I like, people who look like me, act like me, think like me, of the same ethnicity as me, believe like I do, vote like I do. You know what I mean? We, we, have, we have the list of categories there. These are the people that belong to us. These are the neighbor. But we're supposed to treat our enemy like that, too. Treat the enemy like the neighbor. Treat them like they vote like us and act like us and look like us. Treat them like that. That's what he's saying. There, there's no command to hate your enemy. That's just a complete perversion of the Old Testament. Okay. Um, why? Why do we? Why do we do this? Why do we love our enemies? And Jesus takes it back to God's example. We love them because we are sons and daughters of God. We're children of God, and so we're children of love. If God is love, and you say you believe in God, and you're a child of God, and you're going to heaven, then you are a child of the most loving being in the universe. And you need to give that love to other people. There should be a family resemblance there. Um, how does God show his love to enemies? Two examples. He causes it to rain on their crops so they can grow and so that they can eat and live and keep doing their wicked things. He causes it to rain. He causes the sun to shine down on them. Actually, if you look at the verse literally, it says he causes his sun to shine down. Because okay? we kind of think of the sun like the sun's there, kind of does its thing, right? It just, it just does its thing. It's, it, you know, it's the sun, it shines. And God says that, and Jesus says, no, no, it's God's sun, and he makes it shine on these people. He makes it shine on the enemy. He gives them good days as they do their wickedness. He loves them. He loves them. And yes, there's a time for judgment. I could preach judgment there's a time to preach about judgment for God's enemies too. We spent a lot of time in Revelation recently, and you've seen that. But he also loves them. One of the, uh, one of the questions that I think is getting thrown around a lot in our culture is, would you bake the cake for the wedding of the person you disapprove of? Would you do that? Would you bake that cake for the people that are getting married and you disapprove of them? I'm just going to give an opinion. I'm just going to give an opinion. Maybe you make them two cakes. Okay? Just an opinion. Um, would I officiate the wedding of a person that I didn't, people I don't approve of? I would not officiate. Have I turned people down in the past? Many, for a variety of reasons, I've turned them down. I don't like turning people down, but bottom line is, I can't bless what God doesn't bless. Okay? I can't bless what God doesn't bless, so I dare not bless a ceremony he doesn't bless. 
for any reason. Would I attend that wedding? I wouldn't attend. Because attendance is giving a blessing as well, I believe. Right? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Do any of you have anything against these people getting married? Speak now or forever hold... So I wouldn't go there. I wouldn't go there. But would I bake the cake? Yeah. I'm a terrible baker, but I, you know, if I, if I was a good baker, maybe I would. Maybe I would. I, bottom line, I think it's up to the Christian's personal convictions over passages like this. I'm not telling you what to do. Okay? I'm just giving an opinion. I think I'd bake two cakes. Because it, it, it's just for the reception. It's just, it's just, it's a party. And I'm not, I'm not giving my blessing by making a cake. Okay? Maybe I've split hairs there, okay? Because I wouldn't attend and I wouldn't officiate. Maybe you say I'd split hairs. But I have wrestled over attending weddings for people I know that I don't think they should get married. It's like, do, do I show up and express my approval of them getting married? Or do I stay away because I believe they don't have a biblical reason to get remarried? You know, I, I've been through that. You've got to wrestle with that because you're sitting in the room adding your approval to what's happening in the front. That's a worship service. So maybe I'm splitting hairs, but there it is. That, that's how I would see it, at least, from my own personal convictions. How are you going to love? How are you going to love? And that seems to be a popular one that's tossed around today. Number two. So, oh, by the way, uh, I'll keep going. All right. Forget it. I was going to say, I bet sometimes God actually makes the sun shine on those wedding ceremonies that we don't approve of. Okay? There it is. By the way, why does God do that? We have a theological term for that, by the way. In case I just about lost some of you like, oh, you know, if you got riled over that, we have a theological term for this. It's called common grace. Common grace God just gives his grace to people. And, and none of us deserve it. Last I checked, you were a sinner too. He just gives it out. It's free. Enjoy the sunrise. Enjoy the beauty of creation. I made it for you, you wicked person. I made it for you. Man, 77 degrees today, and he made it for you. Made it for me. Okay. Number two. Uh, okay. 46 and 47. Why do we love like that? Why, why do we love like that? We love because it's a chance to show a more excellent love that's rewarded by God. Jesus' point is, tax collectors do a pretty good job loving each other. They're in it together, you know? Everybody despises a tax collector, and so they band together and they, they love well. I'll, next drinks are on me. They're tax collectors. You go in there and and you do good to them, though. That's a different story. That's different. We have a chance to show a more excellent way of love. We have an opportunity here. Because it's easy to love your churchy church friends. I just made that up, by the way. Please use it. Your churchy church friends. It's, It's easy to love the people that that are like you, from the same financial level. Probably even easier to love people who have more money than you too. Get in their good graces. 
You know, it just comes naturally so often. And Jesus says, I want you to do what's not natural. I want you to look for people that you don't naturally love and love them. Find the enemy, do good to them, bless them. Uh, How do you want me to do that, Jesus? He says, um, where is it? Verse 44, love your enemies and what? Pray for those who persecute you. Pray, pray. Now, I know Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. The ultimate act of love is always going to be giving your life. That's what Jesus did. That is the pinnacle of love. But probably maybe a step or two from the pinnacle is prayer, I think, right? Can you sit down in front of God and name your enemy and pray for them? Could you do that? Could you pray that God would bless them and show his goodness to them? I don't think Jesus has in mind that we're praying and going, Lord, smite them. I'm going to pull out the Old Testament words now. Smite from your mighty right hand that I read about in the Psalms. Smite. I I doubt that Jesus has that in mind because he calls us to bless those who persecute us, right? To do good to them. I, I don't think suddenly... There's a big reversal here, and, and Jesus is saying, love your enemies, love your enemies, love your enemies, and when you come to prayer, pray that God would knock them down. <laughs> I don't think that, flow, that flows out of the passage there. You would have to actually sit before God and say, Jesus, would you bless him? Would you bless her? Would you show her how good you are? even though she said all these insulting things about me, would you bless? How often have you done that? I have rarely done that. That's why it's hard to preach this message. I've rarely done that. And that is what he says to do. Which I would say again, pinnacle is giving your life. Maybe a step or two down right there at the top though is prayer. Okay, so Jesus says, we love because we have a chance to show a more excellent love. Church, do you really believe that God is love and that he has the best love? And I know you'd all say yes. God has the highest form of love. It's a Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. He's got the best love. Do you show the best love? Do you show it? Because I know that click of Churchy church people loves each other really well, and you can't seem to break into the clique of churchy church people. Whatever. But will you, how are you going to show a more excellent love than they're showing to you? How are you going to show them a, more, a better love? And I know there's those people that have a different political party, and, and, and they vote differently, and they stand for all of the, all of the things that you're against. Not good old traditional American values, And they get together and they, how will you love them better than they love themselves? And I know that there's, you know, because I have friends close to me in this, friends that are in the, that that, that have dealt with with the gay and lesbian community, and they said they felt such love and acceptance there. How are you going to out love them? How are you going to show more excellent love? That's exactly what Jesus calls us to. 
So name the group. Name the person. How are you going to show a better love? And this is the way he concludes it. We love perfectly. Um, So he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, perfect could mean holiness, you know, be holy. But I think in context he means love perfectly as God perfectly loves you. Love perfectly. How will you ever do that? Well, the Holy Spirit will help you. The Word of God will direct you. When it comes to these dilemmas, some of them I've shared with you today, do we do this or do we do that? You know, how about this one? You're talking to your kids. They're getting a fight on the playground, right? Where's the teachers at? Well, Johnny's getting beat up. What are you going to do? Is it self-defense? Do you take them out? Do you take a couple punches first? You've got to work this out. There's dilemmas here. But how are you going to love? How are you going to love? Not just how are you going to defend yourself, I'm not trying to answer every question. I've picked on a few hot issues because we feel it in the church. I'd like to provide some, maybe an idea about a way forward here without compromising. Look, I know the world, I know that if you stand for truth, the world will say you're hateful. I get that. We're going to have to absorb that word and say, no, 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 we're not hateful. Let me prove you wrong. I may disagree with you, but I don't want my words to speak for me. Let my love show that I am not the bigot you think I am, even though I believe truth says this. Okay, do you get what I'm saying there? Hold to the truth and love so that you can prove you're not the hateful person they say you are. We're going to have to get used to the world saying the church is full of hateful people, and then we're also going to have to get used to saying, but look at our actions. They're not hateful. Love perfectly as God loves perfectly. If you do it the way he does it, you will please him. And so uh, let me close with this. Uh, Worship team, you can probably start making your way up. I know there's sides. Sides, you know, whose side are you on? Are you on their side, this side, the church's side? I think more and more we're going to have to start adopting the stance of, I don't care what the church says about this. I don't care what, The other side says, I care what God says about this. And I'm just going to stick with that. Joshua says, whose side are you on to the angel? And the angel says, "Ah, neither. (laughs) I'm the commander of the Lord's army. I'm on his side. And I think that's the way we're going to have to start doing this. Because when it becomes us versus them, we slip into hateful ways of retaliating. It's not us versus them. It's God loves you and calls you to repent and come into a relationship with him. And let me show you his goodness. Let me love you. Let's pray. Jesus, um, what a challenge for us today. Because all of us here know people that have insulted us, people that don't like us. Some of these go back years and years, and yet we still see them in the community and we still feel those old feelings. Oh, would you turn some of those old feelings into love? And would you help us love the enemy well? We, we know that only happens when we cooperate with your Holy Spirit. 
Because the fruit of the Spirit's love. It's not always natural, but help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.